0: Um, Okay, so quick review from last week. If you weren't here last week, um, we talked about a lot. So first of all, hermeneutics, you know, you might be saying, what does this word mean? How do you say this word? It's hermeneutics. We talked about how it comes from the the Greek god Hermes, who was the messenger of the gods or the, the herald for the Greek gods. And so that name Hermes kind of became this word hermeneutics, which just means to interpret. Uh, to interpret, to understand the gods. We even saw how uh, in Acts, I think it's 14, if I recall, um, there's a scene where Paul and Barnabas uh, are healing, and they, uh, Paul heals a guy, a cripple, and the people say, we've been visited by the gods, and they think Barnabas is Zeus, and they think that Paul is Hermes, because he was the spokesman. And so, hermeneutics is understanding the voice or the word of God or the divine. And so, it is to interpret. And so, one of the reasons we're doing this is because uh, so often I've heard, hear people say, I have a hard time reading my Bible because I don't understand it. It's complicated. I have, to have a difficult time. And so, what I want to do is remove uh, that difficulty and make you read your Bible with confidence and know and understand what it means. And so, that's kind of what we're going to do. Um, Last week, there was one main point, really. We talked a lot about things, but really there was one big takeaway, and that is this. Anytime there is written communication, whether it be a letter, whether it be a story, whatever, there are three things at play. There is an author, there is a text that the person has written, and there is a reader or someone who receives that message. And the question that we really sought to answer last week was, who decides what the meaning of the text is? Does the author decide? Does the text decide, or does the reader decide what the meaning of the text is? And so we went oh, talked a lot about, about a lot of things, and ultimately came to the conclusion: the author is the sole determiner of meaning. And here's an example I used: If Paul were to show up today, the Apostle Paul, who wrote three quarters of the New Testament, and so it, if we were having a debate. Let's just say over over Romans chapter one and what it meant. And we're having a debate, you know, me and Kirby are arguing over Romans one and Paul comes in and says, well, Romans one, when I wrote it, I meant this. It would settle the issue. It wouldn't matter what I think or what Kirby thinks. It's whatever Paul meant when he wrote it, that is the point, that is the meaning. And we also said that whatever Paul meant is what God meant and whatever God meant is what Paul meant, that they're one and the same, that Paul wrote as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, and God penned the words of Scripture through the Apostle Paul, uh, and so we kind of talked through that. And so the words mean what the author intended them consciously to mean. So now, tonight, what I want us to do is we're really going to walk through nine definitions, and and while that may seem boring, we're going to kind of dive into some more than others, and it's really gonna give us a, a beginning of a framework to know when we're reading our Bible what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Um, uh, let me give you this example. So often when uh, people are in disagreements or arguments or they're trying to talk through some, particularly husband and wife often, right? You're trying to talk through something and you just seem like you're talking past each other sometimes, right? Why is that? It is often because You are using a word, and it means one thing to you, but it means something different to them. And you're talking past one another because you have not agreed on what the words mean, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about? And so, uh, so is true when you're understanding the Bible, and when we're even talking about it. So we need to understand what we're meaning when we say certain things. So that's kind of what we're doing tonight. Um, This will begin our framework of understanding how to interpret the Bible. So first, meaning. I'm gonna read the definition, we'll talk about it. And this is kind of last week, but we'll, we'll kind of redo it. The meaning of a text is that pattern of meaning the author will to convey by the words he used. Now, if you're new here, let me just tell you this. At any point, if you have a question or don't understand something, throw your hand up, and this is a dialogue, and so I'm gonna talk, but I, hopefully uh, you guys can talk more than me at some point. So the meaning of a text is willed by the author, okay? It is, it is set in stone and locked in history. It cannot change. The meaning cannot change. Uh, one, one of the examples I used last week was the, the Constitution of the United States of America. There's a great debate over should we interpret the Constitution by how the original framers of the Constitution, what they intended and what they meant in 1776, or should we interpret it in light of today's circumstances? Well, a good hermeneutic would say, you interpret it by what the original framers meant when they wrote it. And if you wanna change something, you need to make an amendment. You need to change it, but you can't change what they meant. In the same way, you cannot change what Paul or Isaiah or whoever, what they meant. What they meant when they wrote it is what it means today, thousands of years later. It means the same thing. So the author wills the meaning, if he wants to change it, you've got to submit a revision or rewrite it, but it can't change. That's meaning. That's when we say the text means this, that's what we're saying. Not what it means to me, because right? you'll hear that a lot, right? Like, oh, this text really means this to me. Don't care what it means to you. Don't care what it means to me. The question is, what did it mean for Paul or Isaiah or Ezekiel, whoever wrote, okay? Questions about that. Does that make sense? Are you tracking? it? That may not seem like a big deal, hotly debated issue, big deal, okay? All right, two, implications. We, talked a little, we, we touched on this last week, but this is often the, where we are doing most of our interpreting when we're reading the Bible, is figuring out what are the implications. So, implications are those meanings in a text of which the author was unaware but nevertheless legitimately fall within the pattern of meaning he willed. So when Paul or whatever author, we're gonna pick on Paul a lot, I don't know why we just say Paul all the time, but any biblical author um, was writing the text, he willed or intended it a certain meaning. However, there are sub-meanings or what we're calling here implications that are consistent or fall within the pattern of meaning with what Paul meant or wrote, but they are not the meaning. Okay, so the, here's the example we used last week. Uh, it was Ephesians 4 or something that says, do not get drunk on wine. Well, what is the meaning of that text? Pretty simple. Don't get drunk on wine. What is an implication of that text? Don't get drunk on vodka. All right, an implication. So see how that follows the same pattern of meaning? uh. uh, uh what would not be an implication would be to, be to say, uh, "Oh, that's hard. You got to think. Don't get, don't eat too much sugar. That's not an implication of that text. You might say an implication of that text is, however, don't do meth, because the way alcohol affects your brain affects how you function. So does meth, uh, and so that might be a legitimate implication." Don't get drunk on beer. Don't get drunk on gin, whatever. Those are implications. They're not the meaning. When Paul wrote it, he was not thinking about vodka. However, it still falls within the range of an implication of the meaning. Does that make sense? Okay. So like a miner who is digging for gold, so the interpreter of the Bible will be digging for implications, Often when we're reading the Bible, that's what we're doing. The meaning, the meaning is often, you, most of the time, pretty clear. But the question, the hard part is, what does, it, how does this, what does this imply for today, for me right now? What are the legitimate implications of this text? Just as a miner does not create the gold, but discovers it, so does the interpreter not create implications, but unearths them, discovers them. Let me give you another example. Uh, Galatians 5.2, it says this. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, let me just give you a little bit of what what in the world's going on. In the Old Testament, what was the sign that you were the people of God? You were circumcised, okay? Um, So you have these people called the Judaizers, who are telling Christians, if you're not circumcised, you can't follow Jesus, all right? So let me read the verse again now that you understand that. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage or of no benefit or of no value to you. So the meaning, somebody tell me, what is the meaning, not an implication, what is the meaning of that verse? And I'll read it to you one more time, now that I'm asking I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. What is the meaning? Yes, yeah, yeah. If you think that you doing anything will get you to God, Christ is of no value and you're not saved, right? You are separated from God. Okay, that, that's absolutely it. If the Gentile Christians submit to being circumcised from the pressure of the Judaizers, uh, then they will have basically renounced their faith because they will have no need for Christ, is what Paul is saying. The willed meaning that Paul is saying in the text is not very applicable today, right? Nobody is running around saying, all y'all going to hell unless you get circumcised. Nobody's saying that, okay? So the meaning, not very applicable, applicable, applicable thank you. There is no one in the church doing that today. So either this verse doesn't mean anything for us or there are implications that follow the same pattern of meaning and those implications have value for today. Does that make sense? So what might, let me give you, one more, let me give you an example that Martin Luther used and then I'm gonna ask you for a modern day one. Martin Luther, you know, the Protestant reformer, uh, late 1500s, Use this verse during the Protestant Reformation to combat the buying of indulgences or doing penance. Now, if you don't know what indulgence is, the Catholic Church at this time in history was saying, if you buy this indulgence, you know, this piece of paper signed by the Pope, if you pay money for this, you will get X amount of years out of purgatory. Right? You you pay this amount of money, you get you get a thousand years and that you don't have to spend in purgatory. Or they would say you would have penance. So, okay, you did this sin, so if you want to make up for that sin, you've got to go do A, B, and C. Well, Luther said that this verse that we just read about circumcision has an implication for that, right? Because, what's the implication? To do anything apart from grace and faith in Christ and repentance is following the law it's me trying to do something to earn my way to god and i can't all i can do is receive grace and have faith in christ right and so this verse that we just read is an has an implication for luther during the protestant reformation that was not when paul wrote it he was not thinking about indulgences in the catholic church it's not the meaning it's an implication of the meaning y'all tracking okay okay can you think of a modern day application for this verse? A modern day implication for this verse. Works, yeah, yeah. But so, but let's get let's get more specific. It's absolutely that's it. Works, but wh- wh- how do we do that? How does that present itself to us today? What do we trust in that's not Christ alone? Say what? Trusting ourselves, our own works, our own ability to be good. Yep. What else? Baptism, we look at and we think our baptism could save us. That's a great one, yep. Yes, yeah. Oh, I've read a bunch of the Bible. That means God must be happy with me, yes. I give money to the church, therefore God must be happy with me. Yet anything that we do is an implication because remember what Paul was saying, if if you say you've gotta be circumcised, Christ is of no value to you. Well, an implication today is, if you say you have to do X, Christ is of no value to you, right? Does that make sense? Not the meaning, but an implication. Questions? Let me give you another example. This true story happened to me. Um, uh, I was a youth pastor at a church, and we were at a deacon's meeting, and uh, Deacon was upset with, with me and the pastor because... We had all these students getting baptized, but they never walked the aisle, okay? So they just showed up one day, and we're telling their testimony, baptizing them, and celebrating that. But they never, like, came up during the service, during the invitation, and and he was upset about that. And so we kind of began to dig into that, and he said... That this was the moment that, you know, if you deny him before men, man, then God will deny you before his father. And they got to, this is their public profession. They walk the aisle in front of everybody. I said, no, literally, Baptist is on the sign. Our public profession is in the water. Right? And so his point was, well, to really be saved, you got to come up here in front of everybody, walk this aisle. Right? No, you don't have to do that. You can do that. That's fine. You don't have to. So the implications of this text are very relevant for today. You cannot mix faith and works of the law. We're saved by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone, not by anything we can do. Make sense? Questions, thoughts? Does that make sense? we tracking. Okay. I like it when you nod your heads. It shows me you're with me. Okay, number three: significance. Significance refers to how a reader responds to the meaning of a text. See, when reading a text, the meaning or the implications may cause me to respond one way, you to respond another, and yet someone else to respond differently. So if I read the the, the, the Great Commission passage in Matthew, go into all nations and baptize, make, you know, make disciples, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I may read that and respond and say, I need to be a missionary. You may read that and say, I need to go witness to my coworker. Someone else might read that and say, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And all of those are legitimate responses. The first two are legitimate because the, they follow the pattern of that implication, deciding to be a missionary, deciding to be a witness. The third agrees with, what the meaning is, but rejects it in the sense that I'm not gonna do that, okay? So instead of our language being, well, you know, this text to me means, or to me this means this, or to me this means that, which is kind of postmodern relativism. We don't wanna do that. We can legitimately say, well, this text is significant to me in this way, that, it, that this text I felt called me to be a pastor, This text really led me to witness to my neighbor. This text really led me to do this. And so instead of it means this to me, no, it has significance for me in this way. Significance can also be seen as application, but so can implication, so it's not necessarily the helpful word there, but in some ways it's how we apply it to ourselves legitimately. Does that make sense? Okay, four. Subject matter. Subject matter, oh, I spelled referee, not refers. That's funny. Refers to the content or of stuff talked about in a text. Here's our point. When we come to a text, we want to separate the subject matter, which I'm going to define, from the meaning of a text, okay? In every text, there are a lot of things going on, okay? There are a lot of things that you could explore in any given text that you're reading, uh, for example, we can read the gospel accounts, and we can learn a lot about Jewish culture. We can learn a lot about uh, architecture in the first century. We can understand the state of medicine and disease um, in the first century. We can learn about what types of boats they used, how they fished. We can learn about their government, their religious structures. All these things are found in the text, and all of these things are subject matter, but they're not the meaning, okay? Okay. Paul writes, when John, like I'm studying John right now for a Sunday, when John is writing about calling, Jesus calling the disciples, and they're fishing, and they're casting their nets, John's point isn't to tell you about what fishing was like, it's not, it's not his meaning, though that subject matter is there, and we can learn some stuff from that, that's not John's point, so authors use subject matter, use all the what's kind of going on in the story as a means to communicate their meaning. But what we can't do is say, oh, there's all this other interesting stuff and this is what it's about. We might learn stuff, but that's not what it's about. The meaning is what the author intended. Does that make sense? Questions? All right, five, mental acts. Mental acts refer to the experiences the author went through when writing the text. Here's the thing, we cannot have any clue what the author was thinking when they wrote this text unless they tell us. We cannot have any idea what Paul was thinking. But a lot of times you'll hear people teaching and they'll say, oh, well, you know what's really kind of going on in Paul's mind here is A, B, and C, therefore he wrote this. We have no idea what was going on in his mind. You cannot even begin to think for a moment. For, for, For example, some people say, oh, well, in Philippians, Paul was in prison and when he was in, because he was in prison writing these letters you know he must have felt like this and this and and he was you don't know how he felt unless he tells you you don't know how he felt you don't know what he was thinking and so you should not venture to guess or to think what he felt or what he thought unless he specifically tells you in the text um so don't do that that's not helpful but people do it all the time but don't do that does that make sense Yeah, yeah, so what we can know is what the author put in words. What we can't know is what was going on in his mind while he chose these words. Now, the words may give us some inclination as what he was thinking, but we can only know in as much as he wrote. Does that make sense? Let me give you another example. When people say, like, uh, uh, in Philippians, Paul's in prison, and Philippians is all about joy, right? It's like, about having joy, and People could say, well, you know, Paul is in prison, and he has got to be uh, having some, like, he's writing this letter about how they should have joy, and so he must be thinking, you know, and they begin to try to backfill that and to, and to say what Paul might or might not have been thinking or experiencing in prison. We can't know what he was thinking unless he tells us. All we can know is what he told us. So we, the meaning is what he told us, and we shouldn't try to guess at what he was thinking. Uh exegesis is extrapolating from the um, text, the author's will and meaning. Oh, man, I haven't thought, I do the word, I, help me, brother. Yeah, you're pulling out of it. Yeah, 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 good. Any other questions? All right, all right, now this, these next two are going to be pretty important, so. Six, norms of language. The norms of language are the range of meanings allowed by words of a text. Language is incredibly complicated and it is always changing. For example, if you look up in a dictionary right now, the meaning of the word literally, do you know what you will find? That literally, both means literally and figuratively. Do you know why that is? because a bunch of 15-year-old girls started saying, oh my gosh, I am literally dying right now because he broke up with me, right? And now we say that, right? We use it like that, I am literally dying because it is so hot in here, right? Or um, I am literally losing my mind. And we use the word wrong, and so because of that language has changed, we've changed the meaning of the word to fit the way we use it, which is ridiculous. Yeah, there is, but we just don't use it that way. So, Language is complicated, words are complicated uh, because we use words wrongly. Um, the author, when they wrote the text, cannot, if they wish to communicate with us, cannot use uh, words outside of their definition, okay? Um, if he actually wants to communicate and we believe that the New Testament writers are trying to communicate with us and so they're using words within their definition, So this is a hermeneutical rule, if you will, that words can mean a limited amount of things. Words can't mean whatever we want them to mean. They mean a certain amount of things, and that's it. For example, the word love. The word love can mean affection, strong, intense sexual feelings, strong fondness, or a zero score in tennis. It can legitimately mean that, right? But what the word love cannot mean is cheeseburger, it doesn't mean that. There's this great nursery, uh, nursery rhyme or story with Alice in Wonderland where she is, Alice is sitting next to Humpty Dumpty and Humpty uh, says glory in some sentence and she's like, what? He goes, oh, glory means, and he explains it. And Alice is like, that's not what glory means. It's like, well, it is because that's what I said it means. It's like, that's not how words work, Humpty. And, why, <laughs> and while words do change their meaning over time, the New Testament was written in a particular time in a particular moment in history. The Old Testament, the same way. New Testament, though, written in Greek. Now, when we study Greek to understand the New Testament, we do not study modern Greek. We also do not study classical Greek. We study Koine Greek, because that is the Greek that the New Testament writers used to write it. So we can understand at this time, these words meant these things. There's a range of meaning for these words. Here's another example. The word faith. You say the word faith, we think we kind of, well, we know what faith means, right? But faith has a couple of meanings. It can mean a mental assent to a fact. It can mean a wholehearted trust. It can mean a body of beliefs, but it cannot mean grace. And we're gonna see here in this next one how faith might be applied wrongly uh, to the wrong author. So words have a range of meaning and they have to mean certain things. Now, apply that to number seven here, norms of utterance. The norms of utterance is the specific meaning the author has given to a word, phrase, or sentence. The specific meaning the author has given. So a word or a phrase can have a range of possible meanings, but when an author uses a word in a text, it only has one meaning, okay? It can't mean three things. It only means one thing. It's whatever the author intended, okay? We've talked about that. Our task as interpreters of the Bible is to discover what is the one specific thing that they meant by choosing these words and putting these words together. Because we trusted that the author wanted to communicate with his readers and he used the norms of language that words have certain meanings, we can use that plus the context to help us determine what the author meant when he wrote. So here's an example. Y'all tell me what this means. She kept her cool. Someone tell me what that means. Calm? She, re, she remained calm? Actually, what it means is that her little sister was really hot, and it was, she was outside, and so she kept her cool by fanning in her. It can have two meanings. You all assumed it meant one thing, and it rightly does mean that, but it can very legitimately mean something completely different, and our job as interpreters is to determine which one did the author mean? What did the author mean by these words? Does that make sense? You see what I'm saying? (laughs) Yep. So how do we know which one it means? The The context. Context is king. Context is everything. The context gives us the information we need to rightly interpret. So let's use a biblical example. The word flesh in the Bible has a range of possible meanings. There are actually two Greek words for this. Soma, which usually translates body, or sarks, meaning flesh. Sarks can mean just your body, just a body part, just your physical body, or it can mean our fallen, corrupt, earthly, broken, corruptible nature. Okay, so it's a negative thing. So sarks or flesh, can mean either just your body, or your corruptible fallen sinful nature. So in John 14 when the text says and the word and we know the word is Jesus from the context earlier and the word became flesh the word became sarks. Well, does he mean that Jesus became physical? Does Jesus became a body or does he mean Jesus became corrupted? because sarks can mean that flesh can mean that it often means that how do we know which one it is john could have used the word selma and this wouldn't be an issue at all but he used sarks and so it has a range of meaning the word can mean both how do we know well that's exactly right so we know from the rest of scripture that jesus never sinned and scripture always Uh, testifies to itself, and so when we say, okay, the rest of the Bible says one thing, and this one verse might be understood a different way, but the whole Bible is against it, so we're going to understand it in light of the rest of the Bible, okay? So that's one rule. The other is the immediate context. John also says right after this, so he says, the word became flesh, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So he's not seeming to say anything negative about the word becoming flesh, but rather that he has glory and truth. The context seems to indicate a positive view of the word becoming flesh, not a negative one. So then we understand this to mean that Jesus became a man, not fallen, corruptible man. But without the context, it could legitimately be read either way. (laughs) So here's a funny story, last night, meeting with uh, a team who is working on uh, uh, some, some language for uh, our leadership structures and processes, constitution, things like that, writing community handbooks. And, and we were, wanted, there's a, a line, we were trying to describe the role of, of deacons. And we wanted to say something basically to the effect of, um, it is the job of the deacons to um, take care of, I think, uh, uh, take care of the, the temporal needs of the church. We're like ah temporal. That's not a good word. So let's use a different word. Uh, physical needs. It's the job of the deacons to care for the physical needs of the church. We're like, okay, that's pretty good. Well, a particular nurse in that room, who might also be in this room, uh, said, "Well, well, does that mean when I'm sick, the deacon's going to come into my house and make sure I'm feeling better?" I was like, "Well, maybe, but that's not exclusively what we're saying." But she, when she read it, that's what she got from that word. So I was like, okay, well, let's find a better word. And so we, we looked up, just Googled synonyms for temporal or synonyms for uh, um, physical. And there's a whole list and we read through them. And one of them was sensual. And so we joked about, it is the responsibility of the deacons to care for the sensual needs of the church. No, not using that one. Not using that one. Even though it was a synonym, supposedly, we're not using that one, so we, de- we determined to use uh, the word, um, what did we use? Material, thank you. Material needs of the church. <laughs> it was so funny. We had a good laugh about it. Words matter. Particular words matter. And the author willed and intended particular things by particular words, and it's our job to figure out what did he mean by this word. And does the context that he gave us tell us about this word or this phrase or this sentence? Does that make sense? That's super important. And like is like a huge part of when you go to the Bible and interpret it is understanding this. And a lot of the time, a lot of the arguments that we have over what a text might mean is over these things. What do words mean? One of the things that uh, is often helpful you, so you t- take Paul, for example, and you, uh, or John, you take John, for example, and you say, John, every time he uses the word cosmos, which is the English word world, it's always negative. Everywhere through the gospel of John, the word cosmos is negative. So when you come to John 3.16, he says, for God so loved the world, the cosmos, we well, you know everywhere else, John thinks it's negative. So it's a shocking thing that how could God love the world because the world's negative, but He does. Even though the world's broken fall and fallen, God still loves it. And so understanding how an author uses the same exact word elsewhere helps us to understand it when it might be confusing. All right, questions? All right, eight. Literary genre. Literary genre refers to the literary form being used by the author and the rules governing that form. The biblical writers, much like writers of anything else, use literary forms or genres of their day and the rules that govern them, okay? If we do not understand what genre we are reading and what rules govern that genre, it will be impossible for us to understand what the author intended when he wrote it. So what are some literary genres in the Bible? Poetry, the gospels, Prophecies, parables, apocalyptic, historical, hyperbole, you know, historical narrative. Someone say parables, parables, wisdom literature, okay. Um, There are legal writings, legal writings. Oh, my lawyer, go? there he is, legal writings, So let me give you an example, Proverbs. Proverbs is wisdom literature. And if you read the Proverbs like a New Testament letter, an epistle, you will completely misunderstand Proverbs. Here's a great example. Here's a classic verse that people have read wrongly. Train up a child in the way that he should go and he will not depart from it. When we read this like it was an epistle, Baby, that's a promise you can take to the bank. And if I raise my kid in church, then when he grows up, he ain't gonna leave church. And we know that ain't true. But Proverbs is not an epistle. We don't read it like an epistle. It's not a promise. It's wisdom literature. It's a literally a proverb. What does that mean? It means it is general wisdom that more often than not tends to be true but it's not a promise. And so if you train up your child in the way she, the way that he should go, wisdom dictates they will probably not depart from their upbringing, though sometimes they do. But wisdom says they often do not. Does that make sense? But if you did not understand the genre, you would completely miss it. So you have to understand the genre in which you are reading. Questions about that? Nine, context. We talked about this a little bit, we're we'll gonna talk about it a little bit more. Context refers to the willed meaning that an author gives to the literary material surrounding his text. So to understand a word or phrase, we must understand the surrounding words or phrases that give context to the words we're trying to figure out. Uh, I gave you an example just a minute ago of John 3.16, understanding the, the word world. And how that might help you understand John three sixteen a little deeper. Another example: the word faith. The Greek word for faith is pistuo, and when pistuo is used, it has a range of meaning. It could mean a mere mental assent to a fact, a mental agreeing with a fact, or a wholehearted belief. Okay, those are two of the possible meanings. So when you read Paul what does Paul mean when he says faith? But then in contrast, when you read James, what does James mean when he, you read the word faith? You see, if you, um, uh, if you understand which one means what, it changes your understanding. And the only way you can know what James means by faith and what Paul means by faith is the context that he puts it in. If you, re, if you understand James to say that faith is a wholehearted belief, James will not make much sense when he says faith without works is dead. A wholehearted belief in God without works is dead? No, James is saying a mental assent to a fact is dead unless it is backed up by works, unless it is backed up by a faith that changes you. And if you understand Paul, you saying you were saved by faith alone to be a mental assent to a fact, that doesn't make sense, but when you see it's a, whole, a wholehearted trust, Changes things, right? So what did that author mean by the word? The word has a range of meanings and the only way we can know what that author meant is the context in which he puts it in. Does that make sense? For a context, you should start with the, when you're looking at this verse, you look at the verse immediately before it and immediately after it, okay? What, what do these things say about this? Does it help us understand? If that does it, maybe you zoom out a little bit more, look at the paragraph, that doesn't help you. Zoom out a little bit more. Look at the chapter. That doesn't help. Maybe you zoom out a little bit more. Look at the before chapter and after chapter. And then zoom out more. Look at the, the whole book. And then look at the whole Bible. Okay? And when you do all of those layers, it will help you figure out difficult text by the context. The other thing I would say is that sometimes the New Testament writers, for example, will quote the Old Testament, right? They do this all the time. They quote the Old Testament all the time. Well, something that's very helpful, stop. So you're reading, they quote the Old Testament, stop, flip back to the Old Testament, find where this, where's this reference from? Okay, find it. Now figure out what the context that that verse was given in and then say, okay, what did Paul mean by quoting this in this other context and how do those things fit together and what was he saying? And it'll make it even more deeper and help you understand it and shed a lot of light on that. Does that make sense? Yeah, good. yeah, good question. So the question uh, uh, is, uh, if you don't know Greek, how can you understand the Bible? I'm using all these Greek words. Uh, well, one is read a study Bible. Study Bible will have notes in the bottom, and if it's important, usually they'll say, "Hey, here's the Greek word. Here's here's some stuff about it. Here's what that'll mean." Um, but but in a lot of ways, what we're doing is trusting a good translation. This is why picking the right translation matters. That's why I preach from the ESV. The NASB is really good. Um, uh, but that's why something like uh, the message, it's not, not even a translation, it's a, it's a phrase for phrase understanding, it's not even a translation. Under, uh, even something like uh, uh, the, the New Living Translation, which can sometimes be good, is not a word for word translation, it's a thought for thought translation, uh, and so you, you miss a little bit there, and so when you have a good translation, like the NASB is probably the best from, from the Greek, it's a little wooden, that's why I like the ESB, it's a little easier to read, But the NASB is pretty wooden um, because it tries to bring the Greek straight into English as much as possible. Uh, And so that gives you a pretty good understanding of this is what, and and you're relying on that translator interpreting it for you. So you just got to, you have to just own that and say, okay, unless I'm willing to dig in a little deeper, I've got to own, I'm trusting this translator and how he used this word, how he translated this word. Um, But yeah, does that make sense? Is that helpful? You don't have to know Greek to know your Bible. All right. <clears throat> yeah. hmm. Yeah, as yes, it is. You can hover over a word and it'll show you the Greek word and all the possible meanings and things like that. Reading the Bible is not like reading your favorite mystery novel. You cannot sit back and just take it in like a movie and not be thinking. I remember one time I sat down to read the book of Galatians. I was, I don't know, probably 17 years old. And I read the whole book of Galatians in one sitting. And when I was done, I thought, I have no earthly idea what I just read. I couldn't tell you one thing about it. You cannot sit and mindlessly read. You, have, you can't check your brain off. You've got to... I mean, this is a this is a book written in three different languages over the course of 1,500 years by 40 different authors and cultures that do not resemble anything Western culture. And, and you're not. And so when you go to it, you've got to say, okay, it's time to meditate, it's time to think, it's time to wrestle, it's time to ask questions, it's time to zoom in. I'm just gonna, I only got time to look at these five verses and read them over and over and over again and really try to figure out, okay, what is going on here? And then understand the context. We too much, we we want to, oh, I'm gonna read my Bible. And we think, I'm gonna read a chapter a day. And you go and you read a whole chapter and you just don't get it because you've read too much and you can't understand it all. Slow down, digest it, underline, circle, write question marks, point, oh, okay, this connects to this idea down here, write all over that thing, it'll be helpful. And then go back and read it again and read it again. Yeah, ask other people what they think about it. If you don't do that, you will not come to your Bible and come away with understanding what it means. Um, it's not easy. I like, we like to have this fairy tale idea that oh, the Bible is the Word of God. It says a love letter to God. It's just so easy to read, but it's not. It's difficult and it takes work. That's why we are having this class. But if we follow these rules and others that we're going to be doing over the next few weeks, it will it will help us to rightly divide the Word and understand it. So we got 15 minutes. Here's what I want to do. Uh, we're going to practice something. So we've talked a lot about this verse, and um, well, there was some questions about it last week. And so we're going to. Put our hand at interpreting it. So I'm going to give you one verse, and, and and I'm going to give you a few minutes to work on it yourself. And I want you to use the surrounding context, and I want you to tell me what the meaning is, and what are some implications for today about that meaning. And you're going to need to read a few, you know, three four verses before and three four verses after it. But the particular verse I want you to look at is Philippians 4:13. And then we'll see if we can figure out what the meaning is and what are the implications. So take a few minutes, do that, and we'll talk about it. Philippians 4.13. Somebody tell me what you think the meaning is. Not an implication, just the meaning, what Paul means when he writes this verse. Okay, good. Others. All right, so I all think it's possible okay what is the meaning what did y'all get in the context say it again god's will okay okay Right. Right. I was wondering where you pulled that from. I was like really impressed. Like she's got some kind of special word from the Lord. Say it again, buddy. What did you read? Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Others. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, so uh, let me go ahead and I'm going to answer. So, so let, me, let me highlight some of the important context pieces and I'll tell you um, my understanding of the meaning. I rejoice, so verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Okay, so he's talking to the Philippians. So they're concerned for Paul. Why are they concerned for him? Well, one, he's in prison. He's been persecuted. Right? A lot of things going on to him. You are indeed concerned for me, but you've had no opportunity, right? No opportunity to to show that concern for me. Not, Not that I am speaking of being in need. So I'm not in need. For I have learned, so here's what he's learned. Whatever situation I am, to be content. Key word. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. So in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So that's the context that we're coming to this monumental verse that, you know, we think means I can throw a touchdown pass if I believe in Christ. But what he's saying is, I know what it is to be rich and I know what it is to be poor. I know what it is to have a lot of food and no food. I know the secret to contentment. And then he says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. So, the, so he's saying, the reason I can be content in whatever situation I'm in is because Christ gives me the strength to be content. Whether I've got a lot, whether I've got a little, whether I'm in prison, whether I'm in a mansion, whatever, I can be content because Christ gives me the strength to be content. That's the meaning. What's an implication of that for today? Yeah, pretty easy to come up with implication, right? So so if you lived in the Bahamas and you're used to having a lot, because the Bahamas are awesome, and then a hurricane came through and destroyed everything, you can say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can enjoy plenty and I can be in want and be content in the Lord because in any situation, because Christ is the strength that helps me to be content. That's what it means. And that's, that's what it means for you today, an implication for you today. Yeah. I'd have to look at it. I don't know what it is off the top of my head. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 That would make sense. Yeah. Does that make sense, guys? Here is a verse everyone, every athlete in the NFL you, who's a believer uses. They put it, on, you know. I think Tim Tebow put it on, uh, you know, his his paint on his face. Everybody uses. It. Everybody posts this. Oh, I'm going, you know, I, 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 I what, I've got a hard test I haven't studied for, but I can do all things through Christ who give me strength. I can pass that test. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that, and it doesn't matter if it if you if you. Uh, you uh, If it encourages you, if it gives you help and it helps you throw the touchdown pass, great. But that doesn't mean that's what the verse means, okay? And it is our job to dig and unearth what the meaning is because what the meaning is is what God is telling you for today and the implications for today. Does that make sense? Questions, we got got like two minutes. That clock's wrong. My iPhone is right. What you got, questions? Yeah. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, well, let me, just, let me just explain James a little bit to you and see if this helps. It um, is true faith without works means you're not saved. The question is, what does he mean by faith and what does he mean by works? So you gotta understand what he means, okay? He's not saying, unless you have your own righteousness, then you're gonna go to hell. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you have faith, it will be seen in the works you do. So another example, biblical example would be, if you are a a tree that's alive, you will produce fruit, okay? You might produce a little blueberry, but you will produce some fruit. And if you're, and Jesus says, if you don't produce fruit, you should be cut down and thrown into the fire to be burned. So James' meaning is that when he says faith, he just means, listen, you just saying you believe some things doesn't do jack-niddly squat you just having a mental assent to some facts doesn't change anything. But if you have a mental assent to facts that changes you, that faith is alive, it ain't dead. It's true religion. But Paul, he's not talking about that. He's talking about, no, apart from faith, you can't be saved unless you have faith in nothing else. So they're both true, but they're kind of two sides of of the same coin. Does that make sense? Great question. Others. Good, because we're out of time. Yeah, quick one. I would say uh, either read Genesis or John. Um, it, it's never helpful to read like the Bible straight through if if you're like new to doing this, because you read Genesis and you get excited and that's fun. You read most of Exodus and and that's pretty fun. It's pretty good, and then you get to Leviticus and you're like, this is terrible. <laughs> I can't do this, I'm done. And so I think it's better to, to read Genesis and then jump to John or John and Genesis and then, and, and then we can bounce around to some other places. But those two books are where I always encourage people to start. Yeah, good. Anybody else? I'll be hanging around for a minute if you've got any questions. Love you guys, peace out.